The new atheism is a term coined in 2006 to describe a shift in the tenor of atheism towards religious thought. The, the new atheism wouldn't be known simply for its views or lack thereof of the divine essence, but would be characterized by uh, criticism and even mockery of religious views with the hope of driving them out of popular acceptance. And as this, as this movement kind of gained steam, there were four men that emerged as leaders in this movement. You might recognize a few of them. One of them is Richard Dawkins. One of them is Christopher Hitchens. One of them is Sam Harris. And one of them is Daniel Dennett. These men became known as the four horsemen of new atheism. And here's what they say about the resurrection of the body. Now, we're going to talk about the resurrection this morning, and when we're, when we're using that term, we're, we're talking not first and foremost this morning about the resurrection of Christ. We're talking about the future resurrection of all, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. It's all based on the resurrection of Jesus, but just keep, in, keep that in mind as we walk forward. Here's what these guys said about the idea of a future resurrection. Richard Dawkins said this, Resurrection is a tale of wishful thinking a desperate bet on the afterlife. Christopher Hitchens said, Resurrection? If I want to spend eternity in the company of all the bigots, misogynists, and hypocrites of history, I'll take up religion. Sam Harris said, The idea of resurrection is as plausible as a zombie uprising. It's a comforting story, but not a credible reality. And the fourth member of this group says, Belief in resurrection is a way to avoid confronting the finality of death, a psychological coping mechanism. Weakness, unable to deal with reality and death, and delusional. That's what many in this world assume about the resurrection. But this belief in this resurrection is not actually maybe as new as we think. It didn't begin in 2006. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, when Paul is preaching in Athens, he mentions the resurrection, and it says, some mocked. Of course, Peter wrote of those who would kind of scoff at the return of Jesus and the the associated events, including the resurrection of the dead. He said they'll scoff at that and say, he's not coming, it's been this long already. And so our passage in Luke chapter 20 is another example of an attempt to ridicule the idea of resurrection. Here's the main point of the passage. Though some ridicule the idea of resurrection, Jesus affirms it and we should be longing for it. Though some ridicule the idea of resurrection, Jesus affirms it and we should be longing for it. And so what we're going to do, if you picked up the notes, we have three points this morning, and that sentence is just sort of chopped up, right? So we're just going to take that sentence, chop it up into three things, and talk about it. So the first point is is the beginning of that sentence, though some ridicule the resurrection. Look there in verse 27, we get kind of an introduction to what's going on. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, If you remember, the experts in the law, called the scribes or sometimes called the lawyers, the chief priests, influential leaders of Israel, they've all had their chance to come at Jesus in an attempt to discredit him 
They tried to question his authority in chapter 20 and say, where does your authority come from? And of course, Jesus uh, puts them on blast, for lack of a better term, and, and, and tells the parable of the wicked tenants. They tried to trap him on a political misstep. Should we, should we pay taxes to this pagan wicked ruler? And their hope was that he would be seen as somebody who's schismatic and a Roman, uh, somebody who's going to undermine Roman rule and that they would arrest him and potentially kill him. And this also fell flat. And now it's the turn, turn of these guys called the Sadducees. And they're going to try to trip him up in a dispute about the reality of the resurrection. So if, if taxes and politics won't get them, let's bring up religion. Right? So we can gather uh, from our passage, we, we just read it there in verse 27, that one of the thing that one of the things that distinguishes a group like the Pharisees and a group like the Sadducees is, is that the Sadducees de- deny that there's a resurrection. Right? So you kids may have heard that song and you can remember it. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they deny the resurrection. Right? This was actually not the only place where they had poor theology. There's kind of a funny story in Acts 23 where Paul is kind of on trial in front of the the Jewish leaders, and and he realizes, oh, you know what? There's some Pharisees here, and there's some Sadducees here, and so Paul just brings up the resurrection, and they all start fighting each other, right? Because the Pharisees held to the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. And in that same text, it tells us this as well about the Sadducees. They say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So they had poor theology. They also only recognized the first five books of Pentateuch as authoritative scripture. The Sadducees were were politically motivated. They collaborated with the Roman government. They were uh, secular almost in their thinking. So these Sadducees, they come to Jesus in an attempt to discredit him. And if we're going to understand their ludicrous scenario, we have to understand sort of how they introduce this line of reasoning. And it's there in in verse 28. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they, what they're alluding to, and if you were here when we walked through the Gospel of Luke, and, or, or not the Gospel of Luke, we're doing the Gospel of Luke, when we walk through the book of Ruth, they're alluding to this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Sometimes it's called the law of lever, leveret marriage. It's recorded there in Deuteronomy 25.5 if you want to go and read that at some point on your own time. But it was a principle where if a widow was left husbandless, then the next oldest sibling would would be obligated to marry the widow and provide offspring, and the first offspring that was given would be considered like in the line of the deceased husband, right? Um, It was also a way, I think, to protect widows because there was no um, social safety net there. That was God's way of protecting widows. But this would be a way of maintaining the family line of a guy who died early and was unable to have children, which was important in Israel with land and how it was divided up and lineages and genealogies, right? So this is, 
This was old covenant type requirements. Okay, don't beat yourself up. up if no, um, it's it's not in place anymore. All right. So they appeal to this practice, right, to propose a an absolutely wild scenario. Right, a family has seven brothers. The oldest takes for himself a wife. He dies before having any kids. And then the, so, so then what? The oldest brother has a duty to marry the widow and provide children. And he dies too. Right? And all of them die. All seven brothers, they just die. Right? At some point, you need to investigate this woman. <laughs> or we could pick on the men a little bit. I did hear one pastor say, you know this is ludicrous because no woman could endure seven husbands. <laughs> But eventually, in this, in this ludicrous story, she dies, right? And now they're asking, in the resurrection, who will be her husband? Does she get to pick, right? Do, will, do they play rock, paper, scissors? Do they arm wrestle for it? And, and they're like poking at this idea, right? They're intentionally making fun of the doctrine itself, the resurrection couldn't possibly be true because look at how ridiculous a scenario would play out. Their point is this. Hope in the resurrection is futile. That's what they're trying to make. Hope in the resurrection is futile. If resurrection were true, it would create scenarios that would be impossible to resolve and therefore this whole doctrine should be dismissed. Just throw it out. So this derision of the idea that we will all one day be resurrected, some to eternal life and some to eternal death, has had its fair share of detractors even from the time of Christ. So a question that comes into my mind is, should we be rattled by this? Should we be rattled by this scenario or by this the, the things we read in the introduction? One of the common themes in those quotes we read earlier was the idea that, that this doctrine is only held as a false comfort because we are unwilling to face the reality of death. I don't know about that. I did a funeral yesterday, as I said, in the welcome. And in my experience, a funeral forces people to reckon with a reality that they don't want to think about otherwise. The reality of death. It seemed to be, at least in that uh, ceremony, that those who believe in the resurrection were the ones who were willing to stare death in the face and talk about death as it is, a terrible reality and the result and consequence of sin. And so, uh, you know, you can even think about the songs we sung this morning. Are we afraid of death? Is that why we've created this false doctrine? Well, we sang in a mighty fortress, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth, abideth still, his kingdom is forever. We sang and come thou found, oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in uh, then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Christians, sing in the face of death. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send, uh, send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. I've said this to you before, but one of the things that makes Christians weird is we sing about death. 
pay attention when we sing to the last line of so many of the songs we sing. It's just like, when we've been there 10,000 years, right? Amazing, great. I mean, we sing about death. Far from being a false sense of comfort, it is the truth by which we can stare death in the face. And as I told the folks yesterday at that funeral, stare at death and say, all you can do to me is deliver me into the hands of my Savior. You can just transport me to the presence of Christ. And one day, in our text, one day we can say, and this old body, this old body that still is sinful and weak and gets sick and dies, it too will be redeemed at the resurrection that Christ talks about in our text. You know, you can imagine the Sadducees here after they ask this question that they might have a bit of a smirk on their face that they are confident that actually no good answer exists to this scenario that they've created. You know, like the spies sent out in the previous uh, story that we learned about, they too thought they had Jesus trapped. They were sure they had caught him and that they could uh, take away from his credibility, destroy him. They are sure he will be discredited before their eyes. But like always... Instead of falling into their trap, instead of giving in and admitting that I think you might be onto something, I don't know how to answer this question, Jesus affirms the validity of the resurrection by pointing out the fatal flaws in their argument. And so Jesus makes essentially two arguments. It begins there in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. The first point that Jesus makes is that there are significant differences between this age and the age to come. There are significant differences between this age and the age to come. So this present time of life on earth is marked in ways that the future resurrection will not be. Right? Why? Well, we read it there in verse uh, 36. For they cannot die anymore. They cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. So things like Childbearing are not necessary in the life to come, right? They're they're necessary here and now when we die, but they are not necessary in the life to come. Therefore, they do not marry, nor do they bear children, because they're like angels, he says. It's It's like a little jab at the Sadducees, right, who also denied the existence of angels, So he says they're like angels in some significant ways. No marriage, no childbearing, because there is no death. Right? Jesus says we will be like angels in some ways. I don't think this means we become angels. Right? Sometimes in a funeral, there's some bad theology. Right? We become little angels, and then, of course, when we think of angels, we think of like, you know, little babies floating around on clouds playing harps. 
Well, it simply means that we are like angels in some specific ways. Namely, we won't die, and therefore there is no need for marriage, and there is no need for childbearing, and, and so the second age is unlike the first age. Right, And if we wanted to zoom out a little bit and, and kind of grasp even further why there is no marriage, we might say that marriage exists to be a picture of Christ in the church. Right, And, and in, the, in the age to come, that picture is consummated. I oftentimes say in weddings that marriage exists uh, because of the gospel, not the other way around. Right, God designed marriage with the gospel in mind. He didn't get to Ephesians 5 and think to himself, you know what, that marriage thing I created is actually a really good sermon illustration. Right? He created marriage knowing that he would send his son Jesus Christ and that marriage could become a picture of the gospel whereby Christ self-sacrificially laid his life down. And the church responds humbly and submissively to Christ. The picture of marriage will be fulfilled and thus marriage in heaven is no longer necessary. In other words, I mean, jokingly, you might say, you've had the appetizer. Now it's time for the main course, like the thing that marriage pictured, we get to realize. So Jesus says the problem is not the doctrine of the resurrection. The problem is not the doctrine of the resurrection. The problem is the Sadducees' inability to understand just how much God accomplishes in the resurrection. It's their inability to grasp that all things will be made new and that the age to come is not just a continuation of this age here and now. So the question that was supposed to show the absurdity of the resurrection is summarily dismissed by Christ, pointing to the differences between this age and the age to come, particularly as it relates to marriage. So the second argument Jesus makes comes from Jesus explaining the Old Testament. What he does is he appeals to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, to prove his point. You know, there, there are lots of passages that Jesus could have pointed to. If you were to ask, like, what is the clearest text in the Old Testament that speaks to uh, the resurrection, you might say Daniel 12, 2. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right? That's just so clear. But Jesus, knowing that the Sadducees have already dismissed the book of Daniel, right, and wanting to make, not just make a clear point, he wants to make a point about God and how he relates to his people. So he turns to Exodus. And appealing to Exodus 3, Jesus makes an argument for the validity of the resurrection of the body that I would say is rooted in God's nature and character. I love that Jesus introduces this by saying, in the story about the, bu- the bush, or in the passage about the bush. Right? It makes me feel better when I say like, something like, over there in 2 Corinthians somewhere. But the reality is, there were no, verse, there were no verses in the original Old Testament, original New Testament. Right? Those were put in later. So this is a good way for Jesus to let everyone know what he was talking about. And of course, he's referring there to the burning bush where the Lord appears to Moses and calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And when Yahweh appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And what Jesus appeals to is this reality that Jesus doesn't say, oh, I used to be the God of Abraham, I used to be the God of Isaac, I used to be the God of Jacob, but they've all perished, and they are no more. I no longer have any sort of relation to them. He does not say this. This is really an argument from the nature of God. And here's why I say that. First, God is eternal. And I think what Jesus is saying, when God who is eternal enters into covenant with those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or we might say when he enters into a relationship with a person, it is an eternal relationship. The Sadducees assumed that the relationship that God formed with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was only temporary. And what Jesus is saying is that God is eternal, and when he entered into a covenant with these guys, it was an eternal covenant. I really like the way one author said it. He said, God, being eternal, the relationships he forms are eternal. Centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, God was announcing himself to Moses. So Christ pointed out as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The eternal cannot be characterized by something that no longer exists. The eternal cannot be characterized by something that no longer exists. Resurrection, then, is not a fantasy dreamed up by the wishful thinking of less than rigorous theologians. Resurrection is a necessary outcome of the character and nature of God. He is eternal, and therefore, he enters into the sort of relationships and makes covenants that are eternal. So the second way that Jesus roots this doctrine of the resurrection in the character of God is by reminding us that God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promises. Here's the the point. Not only that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob live or that they exist, but that they were recipients of the promise of God. And the only way for them to fully experience the promised blessings that were given to them is through the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then God has not and cannot keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the other saints that have passed on. The point is not that they are just just alive, but that they await the fulfillment of all that God has promised to them. And they cannot experience that promise apart from a future resurrection. Why does, this, why does this matter? Well, Jesus is teaching the reality that everyone will be resurrected. Right? And some to eternal life. That's what Luke focuses on primarily in his gospel. He likes to focus on resurrection to life. We go elsewhere and we realize actually everybody's resurrected. Some to eternal life, some to eternal death. So the idea of a resurrection of the dead is not just wishful thinking. It's not the invention of man who doesn't want to face reality. We are not reincarnated. We are not left to be spirits roaming the earth. We can be assured and rest assured that resurrection, a future bodily resurrection, is the teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. God entering entering into covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob proves it, Jesus says. Really, from beginning to end then, 
Right, so Jesus, when he wants to demonstrate the resurrection, he goes to the beginning of Exodus, which actually points to very early chapters in Genesis, right? Abraham's called in Genesis 12. Revelation 20 speaks of the resurrection of the dead. So you could, you could say, honestly, from Genesis to Revelation, the teaching of Scripture is that there will be a physical resurrection of everyone, of everyone. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture. And as we mentioned, the emphasis in Luke's gospel falls on those who are resurrected to enjoy the presence and blessing of God. And of course, we said in the introduction that this is all rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Right? We said we're going to be talking primarily about this future resurrection, but this is rooted in what he did. In coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying on a on a cross for our sins, being victoriously resurrected over sin and death and the grave. He is the pioneer of our faith. He is the first fruit, the Bible says, of all those who uh, will be resurrected. We've talked about this before, but there are those who have kind of come back to life, right, prior to Jesus' resurrection. Lazarus came back to life. Uh, Some of the Old Testament prophets brought people back to life. But there is no one who was eternally resurrected the way Christ was. He he had a glorified body. He had his new body, never to die again. Right? Never to die again. Lazarus died again. Those people that were resurrected in the Old Testament, they died again. Christ was resurrected with a glorified body, and he will never die. And those who place their faith in him and in his work, receive this resurrection unto life. So Jesus roots the reality of the resurrection in the nature of God. He roots it in God's very nature. He is eternal, and he is faithful to keep his promises. And this becomes a great source of hope for us. Right, so though some ridicule the resurrection, Jesus affirms it, and point number three this morning, we should long for it. We should long for it. The work of Christ and the words of Christ here give us great hope. Right? Paul picked up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That if if there is no future resurrection, then there is no resurrection, and Christ himself has not been resurrected. And if Christ has not been resurrected, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain. We've wasted our time this morning. We wasted our breath singing songs about Christ. Our faith is futile. We have been found, Paul says, misrepresenting God because we have stood up here and you have said in conversation and some of you have taught in Bible hour and you said Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and if he hasn't, we have been found guilty of misrepresenting God. We've been proclaiming it from the rooftops, and we've been found wrong, Paul says, if there is no resurrection. Ultimately, we would still be in our sins. If Christ stayed in the grave, then we're still under our sin, because Jesus is still under the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, and if Jesus did not victoriously rise from the grave, demonstrating his defeat over sin and death, he's still under the penalty. 
And if he's still under the penalty, I'm still under the penalty. Those who have died have simply perished, and we become the most pitiable people on planet Earth. Right, But I love what Paul says after he sort of recounts all that. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> if this is true, then this is true, then this is true, then this is true. But in fact, that's not true. What a hope-filled statement. That your faith is not in vain. That you have not been found to misrepresent God. You are not still in your sins because those have been atoned for in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who have gone before you have not simply perished. They await the day where their bodies will be resurrected and join with their eternal soul. And we can comfort one another with these words. These are words of comfort for those who have believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we will always be with the Lord. After discussing the, the resurrection, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We will enjoy the fullness of what it means to be God's sons. That's what Jesus says there in verse 36. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now we talk about this often enough, I think, but th this doesn't mean that there aren't men and women in eternity to, to say that you know, we'll be sons of the resurrection. I think it, it, it typically is kind of referring to our union with Christ, that we are treated like sons because we are in the Son. We'll be treated like Christ, specifically treated like we've attained to the very righteousness of the Son of God because we've been united by faith to Jesus. So men and women, yes, in eternity together, receive the glorious inheritance that the Son has won on their behalf. You receive the inheritance of the Son not because you've earned the right or not because you're a man, but because you are in Christ and the Son has earned the inheritance and we are in Him. And when we are thinking rightly, we should long for that day. We should, we should long for that. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. He says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Consider that for a moment, that all the hardships, all the trials, all the suffering, all the consequences of sin in this life, not even worthy to be put on the scale. If you're going to weigh the, the, the glory of what shall be revealed to us, these real hard things, right? I'm not denying the, the hard reality of this life. These sufferings, they're, they're light and momentary when compared to what shall be revealed to us. And we need to remember this. I remember having a conversation not too long ago with somebody who was disappointed. I want to be married to my husband in heaven. 
They were mad at, mad at the tax, actually. What do you mean there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven? I want to be married. And I thought to myself, like, well, if you're in Christ, you will be. But that's beside the point. That's... My point is this. It can be tempting to be sad over this. Like Jesus said, the age to come is not like this age. And it can be really tempting to be sad over this. We, we at times, we wouldn't mind a little more continuity with this life. I want my wife. I want my kids. So it can be tempting to be sad over this. We may wonder why we can't just keep things the way they are, just kind of remove some suffering, remove some death, remove some sin. And man, why can't things just keep going on the way they are? And in reality, when we are there, we are failing to consider the glory and the wisdom and the power of God to make all things new in a sort of way that exceeds and goes so far beyond what we can even think or imagine. It goes so far beyond what we can experience and have here on earth. Though there is no marriage, the sort of love and joy that you will experience in this new creation will far exceed the experiences we have now. When we think wrongly, we're, we're just sort of minimizing God to kind of the giver of good gifts. And we question, like, why can't we go into eternity and just kind of, I get what I want. Well, to properly understand God is to understand him as the one that the psalmist says, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's to understand him as the one that we, we can be satisfied in, that we can know true joy. It is to see him as our all-satisfying treasure that we long to be with. And when we are with him in his presence, we will not be thinking about what we're lacking. You know, as Christians, as people who live in an, a society and age, a culture of instant gratification, it's no wonder we're encouraged throughout the New Testament to keep reminding ourselves of this hope that we have. Contemplate this glorious future. We are so tempted to live only for the present. You and I can be constantly distracted by podcasts, always have the TV on, 24-7 news. So tempted with the present. We need to have a hold of what God has done for us in the past, what he is doing for us now, and what he has for us in the future. You know, in making this point, right, I, I would say that's Jesus' main thrust. You'll be sons of the resurrection, sons of God. But in making his main point, I think Jesus made another point as well. It is that not all attain to this resurrection that's being talked about, the resurrection unto life, the resurrection unto eternity with the all-satisfying Lord of the universe through the work of Jesus Christ. Instead, he speaks in verse 35 of those who are worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. Now again, we've said this plenty of times. This doesn't mean that everyone will not be resurrected. That's not what it means, right? It means that some will be 
resurrected to endure eternal wrath while others are resurrected to eternal life and joy in the presence of God. The Sadducees, by questioning Jesus, by rejecting his message, and denying the reality of the resurrection, are demonstrating that they are currently unworthy to be called sons of God. Right? You've got to think about who's Jesus speaking to. The Sadducees are demonstrating they're unworthy to be called sons of God, sons of the resurrection. They're unworthy if they don't repent and trust in Christ to attain to this eternal life and resurrection unto life. But those who come to Christ, those who come to him, again, we've seen this over and over and over in Luke. He is opposing the scoffer, but he is gracious towards the humble. He's been ministering to sinners and tax collectors, receiving them as they turn to him and they receive him. So he's opposing the scoffer. He's opposing the Sadducee. But for those who come to Christ and rely fully on him, might be counted worthy, not by their own works, right? not by their own works, but by the finished work of Jesus. The irony of the gospel is that you must first admit that you are unworthy before you would ever be willing to come to Christ and be counted worthy in him, in Christ. So I guess the warning is, is this. The afterlife is different, but it is real. Eternity is different, but it is real. And all ultimately answer to God. Made worthy by the gospel of Jesus Christ or trusting in yourself and having to give an account. So by this point, in the Gospel of Luke, every major religious group, group in Israel has tried to ruin Jesus by questioning him. The scribes, Pharisees, priests, leading men of the city, Sadducees, they've all made their attempts and they've all come up short. They tried the topic of authority, they tried the topic of politics, they tried the topic of theology. Nothing can trip Jesus up. And look at verse 40. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. They realize there's nothing we can put before Jesus that he will not handle. Some of the scribes standing by, kind of overhearing this conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees, they even heap words of affirmation on Jesus in verse 39. Teacher, you have spoken well. The scribes forget for a minute that they're in cahoots with Sadducees and they're trying to kill Jesus together. They hear Jesus' words and realize that he has so dismantled their argument and they're sort of caught up in the moment and they're like, they just accidentally compliment Jesus. They're left with nothing but affirmation of Jesus' teaching. And once again, the attempt to discredit Jesus fails. Each confrontation has left the opposition in utter silence. What are we learning about Christ as we walk through these confrontations? We're, we're, we're learning this, that he has a superior knowledge. He has a superior grasp of the scriptures. He has a superior wisdom. And so as Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he clashes with the religious authority in Israel, if anyone was wondering who's qualified to lead God's people, 
they found their answer in Jesus Christ. Who's qualified to lead God's people? It's Jesus Christ. He is the author and the pioneer of our faith. He is the first fruit of all those who are resurrected unto life. We'll end with these words from Job, actually. Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. How do you get that without a resurrection? (laughs) After my flesh has been destroyed, my flesh will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Let's pray. Lord God, we do long for that day that our eyes will look on Christ. We live by faith, and we look forward to that day that our faith is realized, our hope is made visible, and all that remains will be love between you and your people. Thank you for that. We look forward to that. May we live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.